uh, one, one of my, I've been a pastor for about 10 years, and um, one of the things I've learned is that as a pastor, you get invited to um, a lot of fundraisers, which just makes sense, because we pastors, we, we got a lot to contribute. They're, I'm sure, trying to shake us down. Um, but I've been to a lot of fundraisers, and, and uh, something that I've noticed, so if you've, if you've never been to one, you probably have, but you go and you, you, you check in, and they, they say, okay, what's your name, and glad that you're here, and, and then they're going to say, in just a few moments, we're going we're gonna to let everybody get seated. And then this plays out in, in kind of one of two ways, and so it, I've seen it both ways. One is you go, and this is my preference, is that you're with kind of a group that has a reserved table. Maybe there's someone who's hosted that table, and they've got that reserve for everybody. And so when you check in, they say, it's great that you're here. You're at table three, or you're at table seven, or 19, or whatever. And I love that, because then it takes all the guesswork out of it. Because then I know right where to sit. I walk in, that's my table. I go, and I sit down. It's very comfortable. I like it. Now, what I'm not crazy about, and this happened to me recently. I was at a luncheon. They said, we're so glad that you're here. In just 10 minutes, we're going to open the doors, and you can be seated, but it's open seating, so just find your own seat. I hate that. It's really uncomfortable. Because you walk in, and you think, where, where should I sit? Like, there's all these tables in this banquet hall, and, and where, where should I sit? Where's the right place for me? Where do I fit in? Now, for me, this has become something of a fun social experiment, because I like to watch other people try to figure out where they should sit. Have you ever, have you ever done that? They, they walk in and they're kind of taking inventory. And they're looking at other people and they're going, okay, how important am I compared to them? Like, can I take that table or should I maybe sit back here? Can, can I be bold enough to go and take this table right here at the front or is someone going to come tap me on the shoulder and be like, actually, this table isn't for you. We're going to need you to move to the back. Like, how important am I? And they're kind of looking around and looking at other people and they're looking at me thinking, well, I'm clearly more important than that guy. So wherever he sits, I can at least be in front of him. So everybody's wondering, trying to figure out where they should sit. By the way, if you've never wondered that and you just walk straight into that front table, that means you assume that you're important. So just, just so you know. But for the rest of us, there's a question and there's something uncomfortable about that process. Where do we fit? How important are we? And I think we experience this throughout our lives. Life in one sense is one giant banquet hall. You experience this when you start a new job. Where do I fit in? How important am I? Where do I fit on the food chain, the pecking order? And it may not be according to the org chart. You may have to figure that out, right? And maybe it's when you come to a new church. Where do I fit in here? And maybe it's when you marry into a family. Some of you have experienced that. And you wonder, where do I fit into this thing? But when you don't fit in and you aren't sure where you where you stack up or how you stack up. It can be very um, unsettling, it can be very um, unstable and a very uncomfortable feeling. And we've all experienced that. If I can get abstract here for a moment, I think that um, we live in a very confused time in our society as well. And it, it's not just at an individual basis, but for us as a people, even us as a species, we're kind of wondering where do we fit in into God's created order? Where do we fit into the universe? Because if you listen to a lot of the voices, they're going to tell you one of two things. On the one hand, we are basically animals, and that's where you fit in. And then on the other hand, we're basically gods. And the question is, well, which, which is it? See, if we're, if we're gods, if we're basically gods, then we have the ability in and of ourselves to determine our own reality. 
We can determine our own meaning, we can create our own purpose, we can decide who we are, and it has nothing to do with anyone outside or any voices outside of there. They have no place in this. This is for me to decide. I am my own God. But are we really? Like, can we actually do that? Or is that just a delusion of grandeur? And on the other hand, are we just animals? Is Is that where we stack up? which is part of the food chain, eat and be eaten. And if so, then what does that mean for, for me in my life? Like, how should I approach my life if, if that's all I am? I'm just an animal. And at a societal level, this has all kinds of implications as well. I'll give you just one. If we're just animals, then what does that say about um, the idea of sanctity of life? Does that have any absolute meaning, or is it simply a, uh, a preference, right, an arbitrary value judgment that we've made? I like human beings, I think they should live, and I like chocolate, kind of one and the same. So what do we do with this? Which is it? Are are we animals or are we gods? And what does that mean for us today? So I want to look at this passage because I think um, the same passage that we read uh, in the the prayer, Psalm 8, because I think what God has to tell us through his scriptures is something entirely different. I think it is an utterly unique picture of what it means for us to be humankind. And I think it is a picture that is at the same time both humbler and loftier than anything that society has to say to us. But if we look at this picture and if we listen closely enough, it's a picture that points us to, I think, a profound beauty and wholeness. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 8. And I'll just tell you, this has been a journey for me this week, just working through this, this passage. And um, so buckle up. It's, 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 it's going to be exciting, all right? Um, so verse 1, verse 1 of Psalm 8, David writes this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And stop there for just a moment. So here's how I picture this, David writing the psalm. I've not been to Israel yet. I'm going next week. So I'll tell you what I, I'll use what I know. I picture David in Colorado. He's seeing nature. He's up in the mountains and it's like dusk. The sun's starting to go down. And in Colorado, we don't have them here in Dallas, but there's these things called stars. And they start to come out and David sees the, the majesty of, of the mountains and he sees the, the heavens starting to like come alive and he sees these stars and he says, oh God, I see the, the majesty and the grandeur and the splendor of your creation and because of that, I cannot escape your majesty and your glory and your splendor. Like I can't, I can't, I can't not see you in creation. See, for David, this idea that he would see creation in all of its beauty and in its expanse and to not somehow see God reflected in that, that is nonsensical for David. He has no grid for that. He cannot begin to understand how we could ever get there. Have you ever been to an art museum and, and perhaps you've been walking through and you saw a painting that just captured your imagination. And you see this painting, and maybe it's something about the technique that the artist used. Maybe it's the image itself. Maybe it's the, the unique style or, or something with the lighting, but for some reason, you just find yourself captured by it, and you cannot tear yourself away. See, when I see a painting like that, I have to know who the artist is. 
Like you ever do that? Like I see this painting, I have to know who this, who, who painted this masterpiece? Who is this brilliant artist that would create something like this that, that I could never have dreamed of creating myself? Who is this painter? And then I want to know what else have they painted? Where can I find more of their work? Maybe if I'm feeling really ambitious, I'm going to even Google them. Find out something about them. Where did they live? When did they live? What inspired them to paint such an amazing piece of work? But wouldn't it be strange if as I saw that painting, that I walked away and I said, man, that was such an amazing painting, but that artist, he's a hack. Wouldn't that be odd? Wouldn't that be weird if we were staring at Starry, Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh? And we're standing there, we're just captivated, we can't turn away, and you just see his use of light and this dark sky, and these, these lights, these stars, his characteristic brushstroke. We see that, and then as we walk away, we go, yeah, Vincent, he was kind of a fraud. Wouldn't that be odd? Stranger still, what if somebody walked away and said, I don't think he ever existed at all? Wouldn't that be a strange conclusion? David thinks so. David can't understand how we would ever see creation and not see God in it. Because for David, when he sees creation, he sees the name of God in its, its presence. It's like the characteristic brushstroke of God that is, is etched across the entire canvas of the cosmos. He can't not see God in creation. And then David, he's going to shift his gaze He's looking at this, the expanse of creation, all the, the mountains and the, the heavens and all of the earth. And then he shifts his gaze and he looks down at something that seems so small, so seemingly insignificant. It's a child. So verse two. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I've got four kids, and I remember when each one of them was born, and I'll spare you the details. Something out of a slasher movie, there's a reason that women have the babies, human race, long gone, men up to men. But in that moment, when each one of my children arrived, and the doctor held them up, there's this moment of, where it's like time stood still, a moment of, of like, deathly silence. You're just waiting to hear their first sound. And you're waiting, and then suddenly, parents, you've heard this, that child begins to cry. And it is the most beautiful sound you've ever heard. David says, yes, that's it. That cry, that sound of a newborn child, a baby coming into the world and crying for the first time, the, 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 the cooing of a child, not even ver words, but just learning how to speak. He says, that, that sound right there, the sound of, of kids in children's ministry right now, learning how to sing songs that they don't even understand the full expression of the words yet. He says, that, those sounds, that is the greatest praise song that the world, that the universe has ever heard. He says, that cry right there. The sound of kids. He said it is so beautiful. It's the greatest praise song in the universe. He said it is so great, in fact, that it drowns out every voice raised against God. Do you see that? 
Do you see what he says? This is an amazing picture. He says, on one side, you have this angry mob, and they are chanting and they are yelling against God. God, we don't believe in you. We reject you. We deny your power and your authority. We want nothing to do with you, God, and they have set themselves up as enemies of God. And on the other side, we got babies. And David says, no contest. No contest. He says the, the, the cries, the praise, the sounds, the noises, all the cacophony of sound that kids make, he says, that will drown out anything. I don't care how loud you get over there. And if you've got kids, you know how true this is. I got four kids. Carrie and I are like literally yelling at each other to be heard, okay? Not because we're mad, because my kids are really loud. Don't tell me I need to train them better. You try it, all right? So David says, look, there's no contest here. Like, why should God waste his breath? Why should God even bother to shout down his enemies when he has an army, a chorus of children? Because nobody's gonna drown them out. Nobody can silence them. John Calvin, writing about this, he puts it this way, I love this. He says, these children, okay, these newborns are invincible champions of God who, when it comes to the conflict, can easily scatter and embarrass the whole host of the wicked despisers of God. He said, there's no contest. You can't drown out the kids. Their praises win every time. And so David, he has, he's seen the, the beauty of nature and, and the earth and the expanse of heavens and he's listened to the praise of the children. Now it's in this moment that he stops and he begins to reflect almost the shift of direction and he stops and says, where, where do we fit into this? Where, where is our place as humans sort of the hierarchy of God's created order. So he's going to reflect on that in these next six or seven verses. Read with me, starting in verse three. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor you made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. And then he concludes right where he started. He bookends it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you hear David's question? Do you see what he's asking? See, David is not saying, God, look how great humans are. No wonder you crowned us with glory and honor. I mean, we're amazing. We're so important and sophisticated and incredible. Why wouldn't you exalt us, oh God? That's not what David's saying. In fact, just the opposite. He comes before God and he says, God, I don't understand. How is it, God, that you would be mindful of us? Because we are so seemingly insignificant in comparison to the vastness of your creation. God, how is it that you have, have paid us any attention? How is it that you have crowned us with glory and honor? How is it that you have exalted us because we, look at us, we're just humans. We are so seemingly insignificant in comparison, oh God, to the vastness 
and the majesty of the rest of your creation. And David, David didn't know the half of it. So let me give you a few fun facts, all right? You realize that right now we, we are, um, as scientists know it right now, in the known universe, they estimate there are over 100 billion galaxies. Wrap your head around that. 100 billion galaxies, of which our galaxy, the Milky Way, is just one. And in our galaxy, just to give you a sense of the expanse of it, if you were to travel at the speed of light from one end to the other, it would take you 14,000 years. That's how big it is. And within our galaxy, there are roughly 200 billion stars, of which our sun is just one, that it makes up the center of our solar system, of which we are simply one planet. And on our planet, we have thousands of species, of which we are just one. You see how David would ask this question. See, this is what David can't wrap his mind around. He can't, he can't get over it. And he didn't understand the half of it. God, how is it that you would pay us any attention in the scope of all of your creation? But what David here is observing of us as a species, understand that, that David doesn't ask the same questions that we do. Living in our modern era, living in the scientific era, we have different questions. But what he observes here about our place, our fit, where we belong in the created order very much reflects how we feel and what we're told. See, in one level, it's, in, in one level, it's sim similar, that, that we're... we're we're kind of like animals. We're, we're above them, but we're kind of like them. But we're not heavenly beings. We're not God. We're somewhere caught in between. And we feel that. And what society's trying to do is, is to solve it for us in one sense and say, well, no, no, well, you're just an animal. Or no, you are a God, in fact. And so what do we do with that? How do, we, how do we understand that? How do we unpack that? So let's talk about this for a moment. So are we animals? Well, we are a lot like animals, aren't we? Um, I have a friend... Um, I don't have many, so I have to announce that. His name is Dr. Michael Murray, and Michael is, uh, he's a big deal. I don't know how else to put it. He's a, he's a philosopher, and he, um, he has, for the last decade or more, has been on the, the cutting edge of scientific research in the area of faith and science. And so what Michael does is he works with a ton of scientists, doing all kinds of research projects that he oversees, and some believers, some not believers, and they are doing scientific research. And then Michael's job, pretty amazing, is to take whatever they discover or whatever uh, conclusions they come to. And then he says, what does this have to do with the Christian faith? And he helps people like me unpack it and understand it. And so what Michael will tell you is that on the one hand, there is conclusive evidence that in many ways we are very much like animals. We have a lot of similarities with animals, especially some like chimpanzees. That socially, cognitively, we have a lot more in common with them than we don't. And so for a long time, there was a, a thought that, well, we are completely, like there's ways in which we think and we reason, we communicate that, that has nothing to do with the rest of the animal kingdom. And a lot of those, what, what the scientists have discovered, there's actually a, a version of that within that animal species. In other words, what they've determined is that most of our differences are matters of degree, not kind. And so, because of that, some scientists have come to this conclusion that there is nothing unique about us as humans. There's nothing special about us. So, just to give you one example, Henry Gee is a paleoanthropologist from the UK. 
He's the editor of Nature Scientific Journal, and he writes this, there's nothing special about being human any more than there's anything special about being a guinea pig or a geranium. So scientists look at some of this data and they go, there's nothing special about being human. But what Michael will also tell you, and what you may not know because it's not broadcast as much, is that in the last two decades or so, the evidence, the scientific evidence, has dramatically shifted the other way. The pendulum has swung far, far in the other direction. That increasingly scientists are coming to the conclusion that there is very much a distinction between us and the rest of creation. And I, I can't go into detail, but I'll tell you that it has to do with how we learn, our capacity to learn as a community, as a society, and our communication within that. And there's a host of others, but um, if you're interested, I can talk to you more about it later. But so much so, this evidence has, has moved so much so in the other direction that increasingly scientists are saying, actually, maybe we've missed something. Maybe people are unique. Maybe humanity is unique. So let me give you one example of this. Kevin Leland is an evolutionary biologist. He is not a Christian. And in his book, Darwin's Unfinished Symphony, listen to what he says. The distinctiveness of human mental ability relative to that of other animals remains striking and the research field of comparative cognition has matured to the point where we can now be confident that this gap is unlikely to erode completely. Listen to his conclusion. A hundred years of intensive research has established beyond reasonable doubt what most human beings intuited all along. The gap is real. And David says, uh-huh. God has crowned us with glory and honor. There is something unique about being human. Are we animals? Kind of. A lot of similarity. And yet, there is something unique, distinct about being human. And so while there are those who are um, protesting loudly, claiming that we are only animals, understand that the scientific evidence is moving in the opposite direction. It agrees with David. Can I let you in on a secret? It's not much of a secret. Part of the reason that many within the philosophical and secular um, realm, if you will, have looked at the scientific evidence and tried so hard to convince us that we are nothing but animals is because if, if we are only animals, if we are simply the product of, of a mindless evolutionary process, then there is no reason for God. And understand that if there is no reason for God, if we don't need God in the picture, then God doesn't need to occupy that table. Who's at the top of the food chain if there's no God? Guess who? Us. It's a power play. Thomas Nagel is an um, atheist and a philosopher. And if you were here during Holy Week, I read part of this quote. Let me give you the entire quote because this is fascinating. Okay, so Thomas Nagel, who does not believe in God, this is what he says. I hope there is no God. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that, I might, that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem, do you see what he's saying? This is all about power. It's all about authority. 
This cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about life, including everything about the human mind. Now, this is the key. This is where he brings it home. Listen. Darwin enabled modern secular culture to heave a great collective sigh of relief by apparently providing a way to eliminate purpose, meaning, and design as fundamental features of the world. You see what he's admitting? He's saying, look, we are, we are, we're taking evolution, Darwinism, as a worldview, not because we necessarily believe it's true, but if nothing else, because it gives us it gives us an excuse that we don't have to have God, that we get to be our own gods. We can create our own meaning and purpose and identity, and we don't have to answer to anyone. That's what he's saying. Don't miss this. By claiming and making ourselves to be nothing more than animals, we're making ourselves nothing less than God's. That's the power play. David says, there's just one problem. We're not gods. We're not gods. And if you want proof, look back at verse two. Remember what he said, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. It's the sound of a newborn crying. It's the sound of life. It's the miracle of life. And life is the greatest apologetic there is for God. Because for all of our scientific progress and technological advances, we cannot explain life. We can describe life, but we cannot explain life. We cannot answer why there is something rather than nothing. And for all of our scientific advancements, we cannot create life the way that God creates life. We can't do it. The best we can do is take what God has already done and we just kind of imitate it. There, there's an old joke that uh, Nietzsche, who declared that God is dead, he stands before God, he's talking to God, and says, God, we don't need you anymore because we can create life. We are so scientifically advanced, we can create life. In fact, we can create life out of dirt just like you, God. And God says, okay, well, I'd like to see that. That would be really impressive. And so Nietzsche says, watch me. I'm gonna create life out of dirt. And he reaches down, he begins to dig in the dirt to create this, this human person. And God says, stop, disqualified. Get your own dirt. See, we cannot create life the way that God creates life. I mean, the best that we can do is take what God has already created and then we use it to do what God has already done. At best, we are imitators Wait, isn't that what we're supposed to be? So are we gods? No. Are we animals? No. Where are we? Where does that leave us? We, it leaves us in the in-between. Right where David said. Right where David said all along, we are a strange hybrid, hybrid between two worlds. We're not animals, but we're not gods. This is how one of the early apostolic fathers puts it. I love this. He said, what is a man that you're mindful of him? What is this new mystery concerning me? I am small and great. 
lowly and exalted, mortal and immortal, earthly and heavenly. I am connected with the world below and likewise with God. I'm connected with the flesh and likewise with the spirit. We are a strange hybrid between the two worlds. Both my, both, um, on the one hand, we are more highly esteemed than we deserve, but also we are more lowly, less powerful than we can imagine. At which point, you might be thinking, well, what's so great about that? What's so beautiful about that? We've ended up right where David said we would. Imagine that. But what's, is, that, is that it? What David never could have anticipated, what he never could have known, is that this wasn't the end of the story. See, David is in awe. He's like, God, how can you pay us any attention? In, vast, in, the, in light of your, the vastness of your creation, but see, David never could have anticipated, he never could have seen coming what God was going to do, that God himself would become human. That God himself stepped into our world and he became one of us and he lived as one of us and he died for us as one of us and then he is raised to a glorified humanity and he takes his place on the, at the right hand of God. All power and authority has been given to him. And so get this, get this, because this should, this should blow your mind. Seated on the throne of heaven is a human being. See, in Christ, he is doing something that David never could have anticipated, something that we never could have dreamed. He is taking humanity and he is redeeming humanity. And then this redeemed humanity, God is going to exalt beyond what we, our wildest dreams Not just under the heavenly realms, but actually above the heavenly beings and in the heavenly realms so that we will, for those of us in Christ, we will actually reign with God. We will reign with Christ. Did you know that? Do you know that that's what it says at the end of the book? You flip all the way to the end in Revelation, it says this repeatedly. Let me give you one example. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, speaking of those who follow Christ in faith, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the end. This is the end of the story. This is where it's headed and it's really just the beginning. That Jesus is the king of kings and we will be the kings. That Jesus is the Lord of lords and we will be the lords. Did you know that? That should should blow your mind. Some of you, you didn't know this. And so you look at your life and you think that you have to get to that front table in the banquet hall. That's what your life is about. You're desperately trying to get and to stake your claim at the front table, the head table. That's where you want to be. And so you see everyone else in light of that. There are people to be defeated, people that you have to compare yourself to, people whose only value is how they add value to you. And so you are desperate to get to that head table and God says, stop. Why are you doing that? Stop trying to create your own meaning. Stop trying to create your own purpose. Stop trying to make yourself out to be me. Stop trying to become me. Don't you see, I became you. I became you so that you could stop pretending to be me. By the way, you do a terrible job of it. You're doing a terrible job of being me, God says. Because we think that being God means we have to lord it over everybody, and so we're gonna take the head table. Do you think the head table is where you're gonna find Jesus? Nope. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life 
There's a ransom for many. You're gonna find Jesus back in the back serving people, okay? So we're doing a terrible job of it, God says. So God says, stop trying to be me. Some of you, listen, some of you, you're not fighting for the head table. You're just trying to figure out where you fit in. But you've taken God out of the equation and so you're looking around, okay, am I better than them? Where should I sit? Where should I be? Where am I, where's my place in this whole universe thing? And you are uncomfortable and you are unstable. You feel it. Where should I go? Where should I be? And God says, don't you get it? I close the gap. I've already come to you. You know where the best seat in the banquet hall is? Wherever Jesus is. And he says, I've come to you. And if you will give me your life, if you will put your whole faith in me, your whole trust in me, he says, I'm gonna do for you what you cannot do for yourself and I will make you who you were always meant to be. You were not meant to be sophisticated chimpanzees and you were not to play at being God. To use C.S. Lewis's language, you are the sons and daughters of the emperor beyond the sea. You are the future kings and queens of Narnia, the kingdom that is to come that will never end. And it is a kingdom characterized by the love of a God who said, I'm not gonna stay at this table if it means I can't be with them. The love of a God who was not too proud to become one of us. That's who we are. That's who you are. Right now, we live in the in-between. But God is inviting us to in him discover who we were meant to be. Let me pray. Lord, um, we get so caught up with our own desires And it's so tempting to want to be our own gods and to create our own destinies because we want so desperately to be in control. But Lord, your your dreams for us are far, far beyond anything that we could ever have imagined. Lord, I pray that you would, God, you would show us that, that our place isn't at the head table. Our place is with you because wherever you are, that is the head table. And we just want to be with you as you are with us. Lord, we love you. Amen.